Welcome to Unfiltered, our newest program in our weekly healthcare podcast series. Joining us each month is Dr. Zubin Damanya, known to many as ZDog MD. For 25 minutes, he and Robbie will engage in unscripted and hard-hitting conversation about art, politics, entertainment, and much more. As nationally recognized physicians and healthcare policy experts, they'll apply the lessons they extract to medical practice. Then I'll pose a question to the two of them based on what I've heard. Robbie, why don't you kick it off? Hi, Zubin. Welcome back to Unfiltered. It's a joy to virtually see you, Robbie. Valentine's Day is here. It's supposed to be a celebration of the heart. How do you like to celebrate it? <laughs> we're uh, we're pr a pretty pragmatic couple have, coming up on our 20th wedding anniversary, Robbie. And, uh, uh, you know, we, we, we're not very nostalgic for that kind of thing. But I would say as I get older, I'm more in touch with the direct experience of emotion. And so I'm hoping just to spend it with my wife in, you know, whatever presence we can manage. And so uh, feeling whatever it is we feel. Well, congratulations on uh, two decades of joyous marriage. Uh, I just saw a statistic that it's said to prolong life and extend wellness a healthy diet, exercise, sleep, and mental relaxation were important, but at the top of the list were interpersonal relationships with friends and family. And obviously these withered a little bit during the pandemic. What do you see as the role of medicine in addressing these vital life improvement areas? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, like we are social creatures and we need others. Um, and what we did at our clinic turntable in Las Vegas is we would kind of encourage our, our, you know, what you would typically call a waiting room. It was really a community space. Like, could we get people to actually meet each other in this space in a, you know, non-HIPAA violating way? And and what we found is like actually friendships would arise because we had a turntable in, the, in that space. People could bring records and play them and they would find these commonalities where we do group classes and people would meet each other and they were there maybe for a mindfulness class, but they would end up meeting each other. And so I think we do have a, we have a, a, a an ability to facilitate that also to talk to our patients about this. And then also to point back and go, you know, the relationship actually that's the most important is the one you have with yourself, which we're encouraged from birth to avoid looking at. So I think that's also a part of the thing we can start talking about in medicine. You want to say some more about that? Well, you know, so much of our own authentic being is ignored or repressed. Our emotions, we learn to avoid, we learn to tell stories about them. We learn to jump into thought to kind of imagine our way out of the present moment. And when we really authentically take a deep dive into that, into that, we actually find, especially, especially healthcare professionals. I just did a podcast with Emily Silverman, who's a hospitalist at UCSF. She runs a podcast called The Nocturnists. And she did a whole series on shame in medicine and how we're afraid to admit errors, how we we often feel in, insufficient and so on. And a lot of that comes from our complete avoidance of what's what we're feeling. And of course we feel insignificant or insufficient when our externals are telling us one thing and our internal is telling us another and we're ignoring kind of, and running from both. As you know, I've been very interested in the culture of medicine and it's my hypothesis, I'm not sure there's any way to prove it, that we actually learn denial as a vital skill 
to be heroes. If you think about it, the idea that you're going to take care of patients with contagious diseases with a high probability that they could kill you, or the idea as a surgeon of putting a knife and cutting into someone's flesh with a belief that they're going to get better as a result. Maybe today we can understand that, but for centuries, this was mythical and magical. So I think we actually learn to deny as a positive way to provide better care. And what you're raising, Zubin, right now is that maybe the time has come where the advantages get outweighed by the disadvantages, particularly in the era of COVID. You know, I think that was very well put. I think there's this fear that's instilled into us that if we let the denial shield kind of come down, the whole house of cards will fall. <laughs> the whole idea that, you know, uh, this is on shaky ground and that we could hurt people and and we're not good enough and so on. It, it, it's just going to consume us. But the truth is, I think the opposite, like by looking at the roots of this and really being in touch with what it is we're denying, we actually get strength. We actually understand that, hey, this is the human condition. There, there's no perfection here. And we go bravely into it knowing that this is the case. And it, it saves us so much of the downside of the denial, which is a kind of projection. Uh, we project onto others our own you know, fears and so on. And, and it causes a lot of distortions in how we care for patients. I'm sure it generates the kind of some of the bias that we see with um, uh, patients of different communities and so on. And, and uh, it, it, the sooner we can address it, the sooner we, and, and it's hard work. It's like very painful work. It's all, it's all the places inside us, Robbie, that we're taught never to look because looking there would ruin you. Right. And, and that's exactly where we need to look that as, as, as Joseph Campbell said, who's a, a mutual, uh, mutually admired gentlemen for both of us, uh, the cave where you most fear to look holds your deepest treasures. And I think that's very true. Denial is a subconscious defense mechanism. It's not, we don't decide we're going to deny something. That's like saying, don't think about an elephant. Uh, you're <laughs> going to think about it forever. Uh, no, it's, it's subconsciously learned as a, I'll say in quotes, a skill. How do we figure out how to take those things that we've denied that we're not aware of, or at least not consciously aware of, maybe there's a little bit of seepage, and bring it up into consciousness so we actually can deal with it and address it. Oh, wow. You're pointing right at the heart of any kind of practice of self-improvement, mindfulness, any kind of spirituality. After that first shift where you realize, oh, maybe I'm not just my thoughts. Maybe I'm some, you know, the witness of that. And the next step is, oh, now the unconscious is open. Now it's shining right at you and it's harder to avoid. And the question is, you can still try. And that's where you jump into stories and, and, and thought and so on and more conscious and unconscious denial, like you said. But when you really just allow those things to be felt and with no resistance, with no storytelling, like I don't need to understand the source of this particular emotion, it's just there and I allow it, that's when it really seems to just naturally integrate. And all the things we were running from, it turns out were, 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 were they were phantoms. There was nothing really there, but that's difficult work and it helps to have some kind of guidance or teacher or groups. And it helps to have social validation to do that because right now there isn't much of that. It's like, oh wait, now you're just a, you're crazy or you're some kind of new agey person or you're 
you know, uh, <laughs> you're, there's something wrong with you. It's the opposite. Um, we need to allow it. I, I would say there's a, there's a pandemic of emotional repression. That's really what, 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 and it, and it manifests externally as all the problems that we see, including violence, physical and emotional violence. Let me challenge this idea that it's just a ghost or fantasy. I think often about clinicians caring for dying in COVID who had to take care of three or four people, all of whom would die in the same day. I mean, in our training and in our experience, patients do die, but never anywhere near the intensity and frequency. I think these physicians, the ones in the ICUs, many of the ones in the ER, were aware that something was hurting, that they could feel. But I don't. I think it took a long time, and maybe for many it hasn't arrived, to just recognize that having that many deaths among people for whom you have an accountability and you have a relationship and you care about all in the same day is more than the human psyche can handle, certainly at a given time. And you do need assistance. You do need psychological help to help to be able to both, uh, I'll say, heal that, identify that wound, clean the wound, and allow it to heal. How do we make that become possible, become that culturally acceptable, culturally expected part of medical care? I'm really glad you you challenged back on that because I, I wasn't complete in what I said. When I say these are phantoms, I mean that in this moment, that feeling, that emotion in the rawest way is not going to harm you. It is just an energy that's present. And you have to feel it. And what you're pointing at is, hey, this, this, there were real circumstances in the world that were generating these emotions, but we're conditioned to actually avoid, repress, deny, project in order to feel like we can bear it. And the truth is we have this infinite capacity to bear it and help having the help to actually see that is actually powerful. Also knowing that this isn't a natural. I mean, if you don't feel, it's just like watching the images out of Turkey and the earthquake and people losing their children and their loved ones and their family being crushed under rubble. If you don't feel something there, um, I think it's, you're not really a human, but the question is you can, the, the emotion can arise, but you can immediately project out into some other thought, another of avoidance pattern to avoid feeling that raw emotion, feeling the loss of your patients, et cetera. And you feel like it's adaptive, but in the end, even just sitting that evening and really allowing yourself to feel everything in this present moment um, is a healing process in itself. It's sunlight is the best disinfectant, just shining the light of consciousness on those experiences. Pulls, pulls them out of the shadow. That's why they call it shadow work. That's another term for this emotional work. It's not because they're evil and it's dark. It's because they're unconscious. And by by lighting them up with your own awareness, you, you actually heal them naturally. Let's look at that gap, the chasm that exists. Because when you acknowledge some things, it implies you have to take an action. And if you don't want to do that action, it's probably easier to deny that it exists than to confront it and not be able to address it. What I'm thinking about is that amongst clinicians, surveys say that 25%, maybe 50% have major psychological challenges, but don't want to see a therapist, do not want to get help because of the message it's going to give to others that they're unable to handle things, to handle their life, that they're somehow weak. 
And if that's the case, if you don't want to address the outcome and use the example of the earthquake, if there's nothing you can do about it, you might rather not confront it than confront your impotence to add value, to make change. Uh, I think that that's a factor going on. I think in medicine, it's very destructive. I think many of the 400 suicides a year, I just saw a survey, 25% of doctors report feeling depressed. I think that the implications of that are far worse, but I can easily see how the person in that circumstance would continue to repress as a means to not have to address an inability or an unwillingness to actually take action. I think you're pointing at something crucial here, which is that, again, that disconnect between the feeling and the doing, the being and the doing aspects of our personality. And what's I, what's kind of paradoxical about this that people don't understand, and I think that's why like therapy or help or some teaching on this is useful, is that by actually allowing the authentic presence of these emotions to be and to feel them actually, the actions that result from that without resistance, when we're not resisting or projecting or denying, are actually often spontaneously the correct ones, which means it may be that you go work to change things. It may be that you leave that position and you do a different position. It may be that you're looking at how you structure your day differently. All these things will spontaneously happen, but you have to have, it's almost a faith or a trust in the natural unfolding of it. What we do though, is we think we have more control than we do by repressing and denying. We think we can somehow control reality in that way by the avoidance pattern, but it almost never works. And what it does is it actually creates this passive field of, of doing that actually is harmful where people around us will tell you, tell you you're an asshole or, you know, you don't seem like you're very happy, whatever it is, they're pointing at it, but you're in denial world thinking that you're doing, you're somehow controlling your environment. It's that surrender to what is that actually allows the spontaneous action. And, and that and that can be brave and courageous action from the standpoint of the repressed mind. Let's get off the heavy topics for a second. <laughs> uh, a little earlier, you told me something that I never knew, despite being a friend of yours for these for so many years, which was that you had a turntable and turntable health. I never <laughs> knew how you came up with the name, I am assuming that there was an association between the turntable and turntable health. Is that true? Is that is that how you named the um, uh, health organization that you led? Well, you know, it's funny, the way, the reason I named it that is, and then we put the turntable in the lobby, is that, is the following. And I think it's actually, it's illustrative of even the conversation we had last, the last time about artificial intelligence. And it's this, in, in healthcare, we seem to think that everything can be sort of reduced to zeros and ones, like a, a very assembly line kind of model, a very reductionist model, a very left brain kind of model. We've used that conversation before too. But what I saw healthcare, and I think many do that intuitively know this, is that no, it's actually an analog process. It's a uniquely human thing, like a record, like the old school albums that we used to play when you and I were younger. 
and 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 what that means is it's it's organic, it's natural, it's human. It has mistakes. It has pops and clicks and hums and scratches and and so on. But it's uniquely human. And with a turntable, you put the album down. It's a process. It's a ritual. You drop the tone arm, and everyone comes together to listen because it's such a pain to play the thing. You might as well have your friends there. And suddenly, it's this connection that can be digitally amplified. So you can run that analog signal out through digital processors and speakers and 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 project it and amplify it and copy it. And then it, it's this beautiful synergy between the two. And so I always thought that healthcare had an analog heart that could be digitally enabled. And that was kind of how we, you know, whereas now it's all about, you know, an MP3 jammed in earbuds, isolated from the rest of the world with noise canceling on on a subway somewhere. That's not what records were about. They were like, about connecting together with other humans. So that's that's kind of why we named it Turntable. You know, when you say Turntable and you talk about records, first, I think we'll have a lot of listeners who have no idea what that is. <laughs> let's, let's, let's skip over that. Uh, you just brought to mind a story that I heard about 10 years ago, and it was about one of the most famous records ever recorded, Keith Jarrett's Cone Concert. I'm sure you've heard it. Uh, you maybe know the story, but for listeners who may not, let me see if I can remember all of it. Keith Jarrett uh, is a virtuous, virtuoso jazz pianist, and he's known for being a perfectionist. And he's said to have perfect pitch. And decades ago, there was a young Ger German student who probably had a naivete invites Jarrett to give a solo concert in the huge Cologne Opera House. Now, he is a very regimented individual, and in every contract he requires, he will only play if he has a Bosendorfer 290 Imperial Grand Piano. <laughs> but the opera staff, by error, gets a much smaller Bosendorfer Baby Grand. And this one... The only one they can find is in terrible condition. It's out of tune. Now, for someone like Jarrett, the idea of even playing such a piano, it's horrific. And the idea of going on stage and playing in front of 1,300 people, that seems impossible. So he arrives, and not only does he see this baby grand piano, but he's suffering from severe back pain. He's just driven five hours from Zurich where he played a concert the night before. Now the piano tuners do the best they can, but the timbre and the tone, they're just weird. The high notes sound jangly, the bass notes don't have the resonance they should, and to top it all off, the sustaining pedals in the piano, they don't work at all. <laughs> now, how this, I think, you know, this teenage promoter convinces him to go on that night to perform, I have no idea, but he does. At 11.30 at night, I think it was 1975, the opera's just finished. He goes on stage and he begins to improvise. He's wearing his back brace to provide support to reduce his pain. And he plays not just what most people believe is the greatest performance of his career, but possibly the greatest solo jazz piano recital in history. Only by chance is it recorded by ECM Records. It sells Four million copies, the greatest jazz piano concert ever played, at least we think, in the world, at least based upon the sale of records. I love 
the story. You know, it's really, it's the paradox of our lives, Subin. So much of what we assume proves false and so much of what we fear ends up positive. I suspect you've heard the story before, but either way, what are your thoughts? <laughs> Man, I've never heard that story. Now it's just a long for the ride. I was there in the in the in the concert <laughs> hall with him and with you. Man, that's a beautiful storytelling. Yeah, I, I that is exactly the surrender to this moment where you're just channeling the infinite. I mean, there's no other way to say it. And and whatever you believe about the nature of the universe, like he was right there just he gave up you know he, he just said okay here we go and that opens up a possibility of just this happening and it's beautiful it's a beautiful story and you hear that again and again and again in the creative space in flow states he entered a flow state where the self almost disappears the self that could possibly resist what's happening no longer is there and it's just what's happening and when you stand back then later and look at that and luckily there was a recording you can go oh so that's the transcendent in the imminent body of jarrett right there and uh, and that's it. I mean, you're pointing right at it. And in medicine, we're that's discouraged. <laughs> that kind of flow state is like, wait a minute, uh, this is about preparation. All that, yeah, that's all great. You can prepare. You can teach your unconscious all this stuff. And then sometimes it just is a kind of a letting go to that interaction in that patient room right there with that patient um, in a totally surrendered way. And and that's where you know really these beautiful things can can show up against our better judgment. It's it's, it's also to me though this. Beauty in the imperfection. Yes. Things are challenging. And somehow in overcoming them, you don't just get back to okay, you become exceptional. You know, I've done a lot of global surgery. I'll go to other countries with teams. Oh, we're going to fix children with cleft lip and cleft palate. You know, the conditions are abysmal. It's hot. There's no air conditioning. Uh, the, um, People are, they've walked two days for care. You can't say no, but, you know, certainly you're not expecting much to happen. You're there, they, you know, you're eating beans and rice, basically. I remember I had a week when the only thing I had besides beans, rice, and tortilla were one egg. I had the only <laughs> egg the family I was living with could, could afford to pay. I mean, mm. these, you know, compare that to being in an office in the United States that's air conditioned with staff and with carpeting. And every time you go on a trip, every time I've seen someone on a trip, they're beaming. Mm -hmm. This has been the highest moment of their life. There's something about purpose that is so powerful in these settings. And I've just watched people come back from experiences that you would predict would be abysmal. And it's the highlight of their life. They talk about that for years to come. I wonder, do you think the biggest thing that's missing in American medicine is money or meaning? <laughs> I mean, that's a beautiful story. I, that's exactly it. It's the dropping away of the self that thought it needed this and this and this and this. And then it's just action, just happening. And that connection and the, and the compassion and the unconditional love that springs from that. We, that's why U.S. doctors, like you say, when they go abroad, all that stuff falls away, and it's just the calling. It's just the 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 connection. 
I think that that is on offer in every patient experience that we have here, but we repress, project, deny. We also obfuscate with systemic issues like, oh, I got to do this charting. I got to do this. I got to make sure the employer is happy. I got to make sure my family's happy. I got, so all this kind of idea, ideating about what is needed. Whereas in reality, if, if, if you just surrender to that person right in front of you, whether it's in surgery, whether it's in the, in the, in the exam room, whether it's in therapy, whatever it is, it just seems to happen. And it's beautiful and it is imperfect and you can't control it. It just happens, but it happens because of all your training, because of all the causes and conditions that led to that. All that work you put in now is unleashed in this kind of connected, unconditional flow state. So, uh, man, if you can bring that magic back here, Robbie, I mean, you're, you're I'll, I'll tell you, you will solve the issue. <laughs> so how do we do that? I guess you could get some of the other stuff out of the way. I guess we could automate everything that can be automated and use AI where it can be used and get all that stuff out of the way and just unleash that connection as much as you can. Lori Santos teaches at Yale, teaches a course on happiness. And one of the lessons that she emphasizes that comes out of research in the psychological literature is that as you look at income, up to a certain level, increments add happiness into your life. But the data says that beyond that level, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't add any more value. And obviously, if you have to make lots of sacrifices to accomplish that, it could diminish value. Now, none of us believe it. I mean, that's why she teaches this course. Uh, by the way, it's the most, one in every four Yale students take it. It's the most demanded course on campus uh, because what we think will make us happy won't. And if you tell it to people, they'll accuse you somehow of not telling the truth, somehow of saying that only because you're doing okay in life, you're a doctor, whatever it's going to be. Maybe somewhere in this story, that's what exists. Maybe if physicians had more opportunity to work in a community clinic, to spend time overseas, to be able to get back in touch with purpose. Because when I look at American medicine today, it's a treadmill. There's not a whole lot of purpose. It's not that people don't want to do the right thing, don't have the right values. It just gets sucked out of them by, in a sense, how much is there. And I think that when you confront some of these other realities, those are the stories that you remember. Those are the times that you cherish. And as I say, as I look back on my experiences, I could tell you 25 great stories about families that were able to be helped, the smile on mother's faces, the satisfaction at 11 o'clock at night when you finish operating, knowing the next morning you have to go back, but there's more people waiting for care. And the last thing you want to do is leave that country with someone not getting what they have struggled so much and will change that child's life completely. It's possible that if we could learn these lessons in the psychological literature, that it would change our behavior and restore some of that gratitude that comes out of purpose. I, I think that was beautifully put. I mean, I think that's the solution for moral injury. Moral injury is this feeling that we can't do this connected kind of thing. 
And we may have a million reasons for that. And some of them are us and some of them are the system and so on. But the truth is the injury is there and going and doing what you're pointing at is actually the, sol it's, it solves that. That, that, that's no longer that. I mean, maybe there's this moral feeling that I could have done more, or I wish I could do more that, that that's a different kind of feeling than I can't do this. Like I just, it, there's, I'm not helping people. I'm on a treadmill. I'm just trying to get to retirement or maybe I won't even make it that far. And I, I hear so many people kind of saying that. And I, so I think it is, it, it's, it's, it's work. It's kind of waking ourselves up to some degree. You know, the other thing you mentioned about the imperfection, the not having what you need, it, this, this, this is in so many different spaces. Like if you go to a meditation retreat, when everything's going well and you're comfortable and everything's happening, you know, nothing really happens. It's when you're having a meltdown and all the strong emotions are coming and you just want to leave and you're swearing that you wasted your time doing this crap. And I don't even know what's happening. You go back to your room, you skip a meditation, so you will have a massive shift where suddenly everything is just radiant perfection and you feel unconditional love. And it, it's in those moments of vulnerability when we feel the most connected. And I think, I think translating that into medicine is just simply the human condition waking up to, to itself. We just, in medicine, we think we're beyond the human condition in some way. Again, an, another paradox. I always love paradoxes because I, I find them so educational. The more things we can do, the more tools we have in medicine, somehow the less satisfaction that exists. You would assume that this would be the glory days of the medical profession, given all the opportunities we have to address disease. And as you well know, burnout remains not just high, but growing greater all the time, now estimated 65 to 70%. And I don't see any short-term fix in sight. And you know what's interesting is we've talked about this before, but this left brain, right brain thing. So Dr. Ian McGilchrist, who wrote Master and His Emissary about left and right brain distinctions, actually wrote a follow-up essay, about a 10,000 word essay that I'm in the middle of reading right now. But it was basically the essay's point was this, why is it, although we're able to do more and more and more in Western civilization and control more of reality and understand more science, that we're increasingly miserable by all measures of happiness. And if you look at medicine, you're talking about burnout, et cetera. And his argument is that because we become increasingly left brain centric, where we think we can reduce everything to these processes, but we don't go back to the right brain to integrate it, to connect it, to put it in context, to put it in that unconditional love and connection that you're pointing at when you go to do these cleft palate surgeries or when people really lose the sense of self. And and I think that's what, what, I think it's a good model to think about medicine. We've gone too far to the left brain. It's time to reintegrate back into the whole, and that can be done. That's a, that's a solvable issue. Even the left brain could solve that problem, I think. It's fascinating to me, Zubin. You know, you and I both, I'll say, have coastal mentalities. <laughs> a lot of education. We value the things that people on the East and West Coast tend to think are most important. Uh, I'd say our values tend to skew more liberal, certainly social values. And it's interesting. I've been listening to podcasts and learn and reading a lot about people, I'll say more in the middle of the country, in states that are more conservative. And it's interesting that what is valued becomes family rather than your job, your success, your degrees. And it's interesting how those two pieces, as you say, come together where 
You can do more and more and more, but you actually, in that process, give something up. You make that sacrifice in your relationships and your community and your family. You don't think they're that important because you can replace them with other pieces, but maybe that accounts for some of the, I'll say, growing negativity that certainly exists um, in some in some of the parts that you and I have been. Yeah, this idea, you know, it's funny, you know, you and I have both, we, we are kind of, kind of the coastal elite types, but it's funny, we've both traveled all around the country. And when you go to places where that, that attitude is more family-centered, community-centered, you can feel it. It's an energetic thing. You're like, wow, there's like a... You know, people, they're always painted on the coast as kind of, you know, racist and and this and this and the exclusionary, but that's not how that feels. You know, even as, you know, I'm a minority, I go there, I feel like, wow, this is like a radical kind of love. It's a different way of looking at things in community. And so there's got to be, a, as the Buddhists say, a middle way where you can, re and I think it will emerge. I think it is emerging. I think it is kind of a sensible majority is going to come out of all this on the other end of this and be like, okay, all right, best of all these aspects of reality can manifest. And, you know, there's no such thing as a strictly true belief. Like <laughs> everything is kind of a little plastic in that sense. And so let's try to find the best way we can be with each other in this moment. Um, but yeah, I hear you, man. I read some research that if you look at charitable donations as a percentage of income poorer people give a higher percentage of their income than wealthier individuals and there's a lot of research about being able to give to others research on gratitude for what you have again that indicates that maybe our psychological mindsets about what gives us happiness and fulfillment needs to change. And I think relative to medicine, our view that somehow more is better may not actually prove to be the case. Certainly there's a lot of data that says it may not improve outcomes, but we also may find out that it robs people of purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction in the work that they do. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's spirituality 101, right? Desire and aversion, craving. And this is, but we have to say this, if we're talking to physicians about this and we're saying, you know, we should recondition ourselves to understand that that's not what brings happiness, then you have to look at the entire system too, because they'll say, okay, that's fine. So now there's some executive who's making millions of dollars and buying the yacht and all that. And I'm still like, I'm you know, doing what I love, but getting paid not much and feeling a sense of purpose, but something's not quite right. And it's because the comparing mind is part of it too. Like people will compare and we're trained from early on, especially since we're so competitive in medicine. So it's a big thing to unwind. I'm not sure we have to unwind it. I think we just have to see clearly and it'll unwind itself. But you're absolutely right about the reactions, what I alluded to before. And it's why I always feel a little reluctant to even put my toes in the water. <laughs> I hear you. And we're all guilty of it. You know, we're all, all of us, yeah. Guilty of the comparativeness and the uh, yearning for the more. It almost doesn't matter where you start, where you are. That's that's the point of all this. There is no end. Uh, on the other hand, as soon as you tell it to people, they're going to say, well, of course, because you're above me or below exactly. me or whatever it's going to be. It's going to be yeah. a comparative notion of why I'll call it somewhat that truth. And I'm not saying I'm any better at accepting it than anyone else, but that truth holds out and maybe robbing us of some of our fulfillment 
uh, in ways that we don't in any way recognize. Well, well put. You know, honestly, it's the hero's journey. I think you go on the journey, you go out there, you strive, you get that comparing mind, you crush the competition, you do your thing. And then there's an awakening, a death, a kind of ego death where you realize this didn't bring happiness. And then on the other side of that, there's wisdom. But that wisdom to somebody on the other side of the hero's journey sounds like madness. So they, we have to encourage that hero's journey to to undertake itself safely, effectively, quickly <laughs> with a goal in mind, which is, hey, there's something on the other side that isn't what you think. Let me return to something you mentioned earlier, which was the chat GPT conference we, uh, conversation we had uh, last time we had the unfiltered podcast. We've gotten a lot of mail from listeners who said that was the best show we've ever done. They really enjoyed mm. the information that we provided and the uh, ideas that we stimulated. I want to ask you a question that they several posed to me. Will generative AI prove to be a friend or foe to clinicians? And what about to patients? I mean, the truth is, if it helps patients, then it then it's all of our friends. I mean, any any other any other statement than that is egoic delusion on the part of clinicians. And I'm being as blunt as I can. If if you're thinking that something that actually helps clinical care in any way, even if it like reduces income of doctors or the number of doctors that are needed or changes our our roles, um, you're speaking out of pure condition delusion <laughs> because that's not what we're here to do. We're here to help people. And so I get it. I understand that it's a struggle when things change, but I think on on the whole, it's going to help, but it's going to take some time. There's a lot of bugs to work out, but I feel like it's almost inevitable. And the more I see it, the more I'm rooting for it, because honestly, we are so fallible in ways that the AI isn't. And yet the things then that we're freed to do, an AI can't do. So it's perfect. We've been waiting for this. We should embrace it. We should train the AI. We should... We should really, really, really open to this, but it's going to, there's going to be resistance. That's just how it is. You're describing is the culture. And as you talk about it, I think about Herman Borhoff, who was a physician in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. He meets Daniel Fahrenheit, an inventor. And Fahrenheit has this amazing device that can measure temperature to within a tenth of a degree. Now it's metal and mercury and uh, it's big and it's cumbersome, but it's clear that being able to measure temperature to a 10th of a degree would be a major advance because at the time, doctors spent literally a year learning to calculate temperature so as to predict disease and figure out if there's a fever to a half degree. And they prided themselves on that ability. And here comes a device that can do it to a 10th of a degree. And it will be a hundred years after that encounter before the thermometer becomes a part of medicine. Not because it's not better for patients. It was clear on day one, it would be better for patients. It's because it undermines the importance of the physician and the skill that they developed in the past. And that's my worry when it comes to rapidly changing technology. Some of it is terrible. Much of it is overhyped. But when something comes along that will make a big difference, as you say, for patients, I do worry that it's going to be many years, maybe not 100, 
before physicians embrace it, before medical schools teach it, before it becomes something that is valued, not feared, something that is embraced, not attacked. Despite the problems that it has, as you say, I think if it will change the lives of people, improve their health, then again, it offers a tremendous potential that in retrospect will make complete sense. But going forward, it seems like the problems are bigger than the opportunities because that's how our mind works when it's set into a cultural context. Beautifully put. And I'd never heard the Fahrenheit story. That's amazing, actually. It's a, every time I think the medicine couldn't be more and more uh, conditioned and diluted, I, I hear a story like that and I go, oh, no, it could be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's it's strange. I mean, again, it's why I want to stress it as being the culture of medicine. It's not individuals. The individuals right. are so motivated. They are so dedicated. They put their lives, their patients' lives ahead of their own. And yet there's something about that culture that again and again gets in the way. And it's why I like talking to you, Zubin, about what's going on in medicine today, because maybe between the two of us, we can root it out and expose it for what it is and help both clinicians and educators to be able to do better into the future. So thank you. And get ourselves both entirely canceled by the medical profession because of the resistance. <laughs> I think we already are. So I think we I'm are. I'm not sure we can lose much more. I wanted to circle back to the beginning of the episode where you talked about the importance of positive relationships when it comes to health. You know, I know when I was growing up and in college, it was easy to make friends with everyone and be very social. The older I get, the less social I am, and I put much less effort into making new friends. I know many people who have a similar experience. But there are also people out there who have always struggled to make friends and might have been looked at as socially awkward. Things like long work hours, remote work, isolation due to COVID, et cetera, have made this worse. Uh, one of the most interesting podcasts I ever recorded with a client, uh, they had a guest on the show, and it was a woman who studied terrorist organizations and extremist groups around the world and what made people join them. Uh, one of the things she mentioned was that people who are more socially isolated, more socially awkward, who have a hard time making friends or fitting in or came from bad homes, et cetera, were often, you know, the ones targeted by these organizations, offering them a place to belong and fit in, which is something many of these people have never really felt before, a sense of belonging, purpose and community. You know, this reminds me of how many people are in that same situation and kind of drawn into toxic communities online or toxic behavior online. Uh, people often act toxic online to others in a way that, you know, they never really would in real life if they put an actual face and personality to the people they're being toxic to. Uh, many people rely on these toxic online social media communities as a replacement for real in-person positive human relationships. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on this, uh, the impact of negative or online-only relationships when it comes to people's health and how people are drawn to these toxic communities and behavior? Well, I can say this is a real issue in the modern era because it's not a real relationship when you're online because it's there's an anonymousness to it. There isn't that real connection. There isn't the energetics of being in a room with someone. And it does generate a lot of, I mean, this has been written about again and again and again. It generates a ton of <laughs> this kind of um, false sense of separation where there's you and other. And it really encourages that. It encourages a kind of group think. So you find the group that where you belong in and you create this virtual space that's an echo chamber and 
And then we end up with people who just don't understand each other. And then you spend five minutes out with somebody, with a group of people, total strangers, all different political beliefs. And it doesn't matter who they are. You're like, oh, I love this person. I love this person. Just, I understand they're a good person trying to be good. This is great because you're there in person with them making a connection. So I, I think that people have to get out more. That's, I mean, that's like the, my old man get off my lawn statement is just, you got to get out and you got to be with other people. And I think anything we do to prevent that is probably counterproductive long-term. Every time I look at a new I'll call it technology. I'll call it social media technology. It's obviously based on a bunch of technologies. Uh, ChatGPT. It really doesn't matter what it is. And it's successful. There's always this debate about the positive and the negative. And in many ways, it's blaming the, I don't call it the solution, and missing the problem. What you described, Jeremy, are people who are very isolated, who are unhappy. We know that social isolation has been said to be as dangerous to your health as smoking a half pack of cigarettes a day. And yet we don't have a good way of identifying it, addressing it. You want to look at bullying in school. You want to look at social cliques. These are all the pieces that exist, and we just have not adequately confronted them or come up ways to address them. And what you're describing is simply the fact that when someone is hurting, and I think people who are isolated, people who often are bullied, are going to feel that way, they're gonna reach for whatever's out there, hoping it's a life preserver. And I think that that's what you've seen. We've certainly seen that a lot with some of the mass shootings that happen, making high-powered rifles available to them, makes the problem worse. But if we're going to try to prevent it from creating even greater harm, and again, it doesn't matter whether you're talking about social media, whether you're talking about the newest technology, if we fail to focus on what's causing it, then whatever solutions we come up with won't work. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. If you want information on healthcare topics, you can visit Robbie's website at robertperlmd.com or visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Unfiltered, with Dr. Robert Pearl, Jeremy Kaur, and Dr. Zubin Damania. Have a great day.